Let's open the scriptures this morning together to Isaiah 51. And we'll begin this morning uh, the sermon just by reading the text. The text is the 51st chapter, verses 1 to 16. Begins with the Lord speaking. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of God. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will uh, hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will, be, will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. And now the people to the Lord, Awake! Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces and pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? For the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And now again the Lord, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of man who dies, and the son of man who is like grass? And have forgotten the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. 
establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. This context comes in a passage that began really back in chapter 49 in which the people of God were lamenting that God had left them in a very dark place, very difficult time. The Puritans wrote uh, some bit about what sometimes people call the dark night of the soul. That is a period of time in which someone feels forsaken or forgotten by God. One of the Puritans by the name of Joseph Simmons, he ministered in uh, England and later in the Netherlands and then back again in England. And he wrote uh, a work uh, entitled The Case and Cure of a Deserted Soul. He writes about desertions that God's people experience in the course of their relationship with him and their communion with him. Periods of time when it seems that they have been abandoned. In that book, he makes a distinction between what he calls true desertions on the one hand, by which he doesn't mean that any of God's true children are utterly forsaken and abandoned by God, but rather that God is removing, for a period of time, he does remove the sense of his presence, the enjoyment of his presence. As David prayed, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That is removed for a time, sometimes from the true people of God. He hides his face, as it were. That is, the blessing of of his countenance gazing upon them is obscured for a time. It happens as a trial or a test for God's people. It happens as a chastening of God's people for their forsaking of him and abandoning the, the earnest use of the means of grace or, or falling into sin and, and apathy towards their Lord. And they'll experience these periods. But God in his purposes is always intends their good, even in these moments. But then he distinguishes between that and what he calls desertions in appearance only. And this is really equivalent to what the 20th century British pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, called spiritual depression. Spiritual depression. And Lloyd-Jones's diagnosis was, the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. That is, even among God's people, a lack of trust and confidence in him. And so they experience a desertion in appearance only, not that God has abandoned them, not that he's deserted them, but because of their fearfulness and their unbelief, they, they don't have that sense that he's with them and present and blessing them. And Simmons goes on to uh, describe that this way. He says, quote, A godly man sometimes may draw sad conclusions against himself and conceive that God has departed from him when it is not so. This mistake proceeds, he says, from such causes as these. And he goes on to list some, and the number one cause that he lists is this, 
fearfulness. And I want you to see that that's the kind of saint that the Lord himself is addressing in Isaiah chapter 51. These are saints indeed who are yet in a moment of fearfulness, a lack of faith and confidence in their good God, and so feel like they've been abandoned by him. And this is, in fact, a common experience for God's people when they, when they come to a point where their faith is clouded by, by fearfulness. Let me show you that this is who we're talking to. This is who the Lord is speaking to. All right, open your Bible, look at the text, and notice the descriptions. He describes the people that he's speaking to. Because you know, as you're reading through Isaiah, the Lord addresses sometimes a particular kind of person, and other times he addresses another kind of person. There are very different moods in this book, right? And, and so we need to be careful that we're uh, receiving a word that really is addressed to us. In verse 1, here's the kind of person he's speaking to. Listen to me, you who what? Who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord. So he's speaking to people who pursue the Lord, who pursue his righteousness. We're talking about a believing remnant of God's true people within this vast nation of Judah, many of whom were unbelievers, yet he's speaking to those who really know him, who really seek after him. You see it again in verse 7. Again, he describes the people to whom he's speaking. And he says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. He's talking to people who are seeking him, seeking his righteousness, who love his law, who love his word, who've internalized it, who know the righteousness of God that would come through the Messiah. These are the people to whom he speaks. And in verses 9 to 11, they pray a prayer that is filled with faith. So this sermon this morning, because this text this morning has a particular audience, this sermon this morning has a particular audience, and the audience is you who believe, you who are the Lord's. I'm talking to you this morning in particular. And the comfort that the Lord is going to give to those kinds of people doesn't belong to every single human being indiscriminately. And so, you know, one of the things a pastor, a preacher is constantly um, concerned with is that when he preaches God's word to God's people, that some who are not the, those who belong to the Lord take this as an encouragement for themselves. No, the Bible has, even this book has very different moods, and the first 39 chapters of this book are filled with warnings and predictions of judgment and condemnation upon all who resist the Lord and his Messiah. That's all that you have if you are outside of Christ. But this text is a word to those who belong to him, who seek after him. But there are also people who are, in fact, still struggling with fear. They're still struggling, even though they're believers, with fearfulness. They are, after all, facing the might of the Assyrian nation. They've already conquered many other lands and are about to destroy the northern part of what used to be Israel. 
obliterate a whole section of those who were called the people of God. And before too very long, as Isaiah himself prophesied, they'll face another great threat, and that's the threat of Babylon, who will come and destroy the entire city of Jerusalem. It will be left in ruins, and the people of that city will be carried away into captivity for many, many years. So they're facing a situation that's very fraught. They're tempted to see this as an apparent as an abandonment by God, and they're filled yet with fear, even though they are people of faith. And, and if you've never experienced that, you know, I don't know, maybe you haven't been a Christian very long, that you can be trusting God with all your heart, and yet still in the moment be shaken with fear. That you can say, oh Lord, I believe, but in the next breath say, help my unbelief. Right? This is the kind of people that he's speaking to. And you see this here in verse 7. Look at the end of the verse. The Lord has to speak to these who are seeking him and say to them, Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. So they're filled with fear. Verse 12, the middle of the verse, he describes them as, quote, You that are afraid. And then in the middle of verse 13, he says to them, you fear continually all the day. So I want to say that this is God's word to fearful believers. And this is God's word to fearful believers, not just all of those centuries ago, but to God's people today who truly are seeking his face and yet face moments that cause them to be filled with anxiety, to be filled with fear. Maybe it's the fear of man. Maybe it's the fear of what people can do to you. Maybe it's the fear of what's going on in the world and the way that the world just seems to be coming unhinged. The fear of what's going on in secret places. The fear of things just becoming chaotic. Maybe it's the fear of the future. Not knowing what's going to happen, how things are going to work out. Not being able to see to the end of the tunnel. There's no light right now. You're just in the dark. Maybe, maybe it's the fear or anxiety when you think about the strength of sin and the enemy, Satan, coming against you, arrayed with all of his wiles and his subtlety. Maybe it's fear when you are in a moment where it seems like God has forgotten and his promises are, are going to fall to the ground and never come to true for you. But there are times in the life of everyone who is truly the Lord's when he is plagued with anxiety and fear in the moment. And this is, this is God's word for us. Now before we look at that word um, in depth, I want to just see how, again, how the passage kind of unfolds here. I tried to highlight this even as I was reading it, but let me point it out to you again, and maybe you even mark in your Bible so it, it just jumps out at you. Verses 1 to 8 is a divine appeal. God is speaking. God is appealing to his people, and you can just see that the way he speaks, right? Look at verse 1, listen to me. <laughs> and verse 4, give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. 
Verse 7 again, listen to me, right, over and over again. This is the way the Lord is uh, coming to his people with a great appeal. So begins with the Lord speaking to us, calling us to hear his word. But then in verses 9 to 11, perhaps in response to this, the people pray, the remnant call out to the Lord. And they're calling out to him, you see the first words there, verse 9, to awake and to act. Lord, rouse yourself and show your mighty arm. Get up and, and act on our behalf. We're in need here. Lord, help. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O arm of the Lord. That's their prayer. And then the third section is in verses 12 to 16. And once again here, the Lord is speaking. And he's responding to his people. He's responding to their prayers with words of comfort. You see that right at the beginning of verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. So this is the word of comfort in this whole section of the book that could be characterized as God's comfort for his people. This is God's comforting word to fearful believers. And what you have in this passage then, these first 16 verses, is kind of a conversation back and forth between God and his people and God responding. God takes the initiative. And by the way, God always takes the initiative, right? We love him because he first loved us. We sought him because he first sought us. The Lord takes the initiative and he calls out to his people to come and to hear him. And then they respond. They respond with, with earnestness. You, you'll, you'll see it in, in this prayer. And, and with faith. And yet, um, they still need to be sanctified further, and so he comes back to them again with a response that encourages them not to keep going in their fearfulness, but to hope and trust in him. He is laboring, and, and you just have to say it that way. I mean, this really is what the Lord is doing in this passage. He is laboring to deliver his people from worldly fearfulness. He's laboring to do that. It takes him these, you know, right, we have 39 chapters of judgment, and then we have chapter 40 on through the rest of the book where the Lord is encouraging or uh, comforting his people. And why does it take so many chapters? Because God's people are slow to be comforted. There was uh, another one of the Puritans, Thomas Boston, uh, excuse me, Thomas Watson, this was, um, pastored many years in London, and he said two of, the, two of the most difficult things in pastoral ministry are, one, making the wicked fearful, and two, making the godly joyful. And sometimes it's almost as hard to truly comfort God's people as it is to shake complacent sinners. So the Lord is laboring here to comfort the hearts of people who are prone to wander, whose faith is easily shaken by what they see around them. And when the lights go out, they say, like a little child, oh, oh, I will be lost. The Lord is answering his people here. And God's purpose in 
comforting his people begins with this divine appeal in verses 1 to 8. Let's take a look at this first. The Lord comes to his people, to the believing remnant, those who seek the Lord, who are yet faced with the frightening prospect of destruction and captivity. And three times he says to them, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Have you ever tried to calm someone who was on the verge of hysteria? Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> and and you, you might even grab them by the shoulders and you get your face right in their face and you say, listen to me, listen to me, <laughs> okay? This is, this is really kind of like what the Lord seems to be doing with these people. What, what he does with us, what he's doing with us today Maybe, maybe you're in this position where you just need God to say to you this morning three times, listen to me. I have something to say to you. It's going to be okay. Right? The Lord is appealing to his people. And what does he give them? I mean, if he's saying over and over again, listen to me, what's he going to give them to comfort them? He's going to give them what? Listen to me, listen to me. He's going to give them he's going to give them words, right? He's going to give them a message. He's going to give them his words. And it is God's words that are always the source of comfort for his people. And I and I've counseled plenty, myself included and other people who have been caught in so sort of the maelstrom of life and their minds are going a hundred miles a minute in circles, and the thing that they need more than anything else is to just put God's words in front of them and to really think about those words and to listen to those words. Nothing inside here is going to help. It's what's outside of here that needs to come in that's going to put your feet back on the rock. Listen to me, he says. I've got words for you. To these people who were so filled with anxiety, he comes and he's going to reason with them. He's going to use his word to reason with them and to assure them. And what he wants to do with his words is to open their mind's eye, to grant by his word spiritual vision. Look at this. Look at verse 1. Look what he says when he says, listen to me. The very next thing he says is, what seems like you're using another faculty of your body, look. Look to the rock. And again in verse 2, look to Abraham, your father. And verse 6, Look up, excuse me, lift up your eyes and look. And I'll just say it this way, Christians, did you know that Christians see with their ears? <laughs> God opens our eyes by giving us his word. That's how we see. We don't see with physical eyes. We don't bring our eyelids open and we say, okay, now, now I see, I, I can look a little bit more, I can investigate the situation around me that I can see and touch and feel a little bit more, and now I can see, now I've got peace, now I'm okay. No, we see with our ears. 
We see what's really true, what the outcome is beyond the time horizon. We see it with eyes of faith that comes through hearing the word of God. So he says, look, look. And what is he going to have them do? Two things. Number one, he wants them to look back. Look back. Let's take a look. Verse 1. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Right? Go back to your origin. You are a rock, a stone. Look to the mountainside where you were first carved out of. To say it another way, verse 2, look to Abraham your father and Sarah who bore you. And of course, the nation of Judah were descended from, well, Jacob, who was descended from Isaac, who was descended from Abraham and his wife, Sarah. So he says, look to where you came from. Look back. And what are they supposed to specifically see? Take a look at the text. What does he want them to see when they look back to Abraham their father and Sarah their mother? He was but what? You see it? He was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. Not, not speaking of age, of course. He wasn't one year old but he was one singular person. The Lord is talking about the size of the nation. When I called you, Judah, when I called the nation of Israel, you were one. You were a nation of one. <laughs> That's a big nation, isn't it? A nation of one. And yet the Lord took that one outside in the dark. Look up at the sky, Abraham, and you see those stars of the heavens? I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the heavens. I'm going to make them like the sand of the sea, one. And the Lord makes him this promise. And uh, to complicate the matter even further, of course, the fact is that Abraham was, you know, past his prime, we might say, in a kind way. Or we might use the words of the writer of Hebrews, he was as good as dead. In terms of his procreative powers, he was as good as dead. And his wife, Sarah, Sarah at the time, was beyond childbearing years. And yet from that one, this is the point he's making, right? From that one came a nation of millions. And, you know, this amazing... <laughs> turn of events actually is even made even more amazing when you consider the rest of Israel's history. His son Isaac uh, married a, a woman by the name of Rebekah who was also barren, unable to have children until the Lord opened her womb. And Jacob and his wife Rachel also barren until the Lord opened her womb. In spite of this again and again and again, three time impossibility and Abraham as well as good as dead if you count all of these things I mean this is a nation of one that miraculously against all of the odds against everything that that uh, could be looked at as a human explanation that nation becomes a great nation in the earth amazing and and you know you think about their history and even more 
further down the line, their, their whole line could have been wiped out because a severe famine came on the land during the time of Jacob. Remember that, Jacob? But through God's very dark and unchartable providence, Joseph, one of the sons, was sold into slavery and in the providence of God ended up in a high place in the nation of Egypt. And from there was able to bring the whole family into Egypt and provide for them. That entire family was sheltered and provided for when they might have faced extinction. And in the Exodus, Moses actually makes this point that I think the Lord is making here. Moses, when he records the, the Exodus of the people of Israel, he, he takes note to say that they went into Egypt as a family of about 70, and they went out of Egypt years later as a nation of two million, right? I mean, this is an amazing thing what the Lord has done. I mean, astounding, beyond all. I mean, here's one who's beyond his ability to bear children and his wife and their son whose wife is barren and their son whose wife is barren and almost getting wiped out and over and over and over again. It's just the impossibility of these people being, the fact that they exist, the fact that they're there is a testimony to the faithfulness of God to his promise. And the point of all of this is that God does unexpected things, even when his people seem forsaken and abandoned. But the whole history of these people teaches them that God is faithful to fulfill his promises, even in the most impossible of circumstances. And all they needed to do to see that is to look back, to look back at what God had done. And in verses 3 to 5 now, in verses 3 to 5, just like that, God would take barren Zion of Isaiah's day, a city laid waste by uh, Babylon in the near future, and cause that barren place to be peopled again, to blossom and flourish and be fruitful again. Look at verse 3. The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. The Lord is, you know, just like he brought Israel and Judah into being out of nothing, out of one who was as good as dead, God can do it again with this abandoned city of Zion. Just like he gave life to the barren womb of Sarah, he can give life again to this barren land. Just like he filled the land with people in the first place, he can do it again. The Lord says, just look back and see that I am faithful. And we've seen all along, we'll see it again here, this theme that God is going to fill Zion. He's going to people Zion. He's going to cause Zion to flourish, not just with Judeans, but with people from all of the nations. And so he says in verse 4 now, Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. A law will go out from me. This law is described in verse 7 as being in their hearts. I will put my law in their hearts. This is a new covenant promise. The law will go out from me, and justice 
will be a light to the peoples, that justice being preeminently displayed in the cross of Christ where God's justice against the sinfulness of his people was put on display. God's justice meted out, taken upon himself on their behalf. And chapter 53 will will, um, bring this out in a great detail. Verse 5, he says, My righteousness draws near... And of course, the righteousness of God embodied in the person of Christ did draw near to those people. He came unto his own. And it says, verse 5, my salvation has gone out. Not only has it come near, but it's gone out. He came to that city, and from there, Jerusalem and Judea, the gospel went out to the uttermost part of the earth. And my arm, verse 5, my arms will judge the people's the nations of the earth, the families of the earth, the peoples, and the coastlands, that is the farthest flung places of the earth, the coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. The Lord says, I will fill barren Zion with peoples from all over the earth. We've seen this again and again in this book. This is the way that the Lord will fulfill this prophecy in the person of Christ and all who are united to him. But those people to whom he made this promise, um, they watch their city, they would watch their city burn, the hand of the Babylonians. And they would be, many of them, really gripped by fear and by even perhaps doubts. Has the Lord... Is the Lord going to keep his promise? He's made us these incredible promises about what he's going to do with our city, how it's going to be great and lush and beautiful and filled with with children of God. And now it seems like everything's going exactly the opposite way. And their hearts begin to uh, be gripped by fear. And this is the way it is so often for the Lord's people. But the Lord comes to them with this encouragement. And the encouragement is simply this. Look back. Look back. I've done this before. I've done, I've been faithful to you in the past when it seems like all the odds were against you. When it seems like there was no human way, I did what I promised. I will do it again. Look back to where you came from. Look back to the rock from which you were hewn. And of course, this is exactly what God's people need to hear when we are plagued by our own doubts and our own fears. The Lord says to you this morning, listen, my child, look back. Look back at what I've done. Look back at what I have done in your life. Look at the pit from which you were digged Remember who you used to be apart from grace? Remember the miracle that I did? Against all human explanation, you were born again? You were brought to me even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins? Has God done a miracle in your life in the past? Has he been faithful all of these years? The Lord says to you, what I've done before, I will do again. What I began in you, I will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. This is really the 
the theme behind the hymn that we sang earlier. We call it Amazing Grace. I was telling the folks on Wednesday night, there was originally another name to that, another title. John Newton wrote it, I think, to go along with a, uh, a, a New Year's Day sermon that he was preaching. And the encouragement, and, and this is actually a frequent thing done by some of the Puritans and others, is on, on birthdays or on the anniversaries of someone's new birth or on the first day of a year, to take a moment, to take a day, really often for them, sometimes as a day of fasting, but a day of remembering all that God has done in my life. You know? I mean, maybe that's something we ought to recover sometime. We're so busy looking forward to the next thing, the next exciting event in our life, and just jumping from one to the next. The Lord says, wait, stop and look back. And so Newton wrote this hymn, titled Faith's Review and Expectation. So it wasn't just a looking back, it was also a looking forward. It was looking back at the faithfulness of God and a looking forward to what could be filled with fear and uncertainty, but with confidence that the God who was with me in the past is going to be with me all the way to the end. And so he wrote, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me, what? Safe thus far. And that same grace will lead me safely home. Can you look back and, and see? He's brought me through many dangers, toils, and snares. Praise God. I can't believe all of his grace and mercy to me. I'm still here. I'm still believing. I'm still taken care of. I'm still his child. What an amazing God. Right now, that, that same God is the God of tomorrow and the God of next year and the God of 10 years from now and the God of 1,000 years from now. Newton went on in the song, the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Just like in the past, so in the future. Oh, fearful saint, let this word of God be yours today. Literally, hold on to this truth. Look back at the God who brought you out of the miry clay and set your feet on a rock. Really, just go back and think about that. Take some time today. Meditate on all that God has done in your life. He's kept you. He's chastened you. He's provided. He's protected. He's sanctified. He's preserved. Look back. He says, not only look back, but look around. Verses 6 to 8. In verse 6, the Lord says to his people, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. And he's literally telling them, look around. Look up. Look down. Look at all the vastness of space out there. And look at all of the wonder of this planet below. Look around. Take it all in, okay? 
And then he says, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. You hear what the Lord is saying? The heavens and the earth themselves are going to pass away sooner than my salvation, sooner than my purposes. And Newton actually has another line of his hymn that goes like this, The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. There's something that is more stable and more secure than all everything you see when you look up in the night sky. And that's pretty stable, right? It's pretty, it's pretty regular. We can, we can launch rockets filled with, you know, explosive propellant and put a few human beings on top of that bullet and send it off into the inky blackness of outer space and hope that they're actually going to come back. Why? Because God has made the world, and there is a regular pattern to it. It bears the fingerprints of God. I mean, they're, they're, it's a wonderful thing. And there's wonders down here below. But God says, look at all of that. And e even if all of that is gone, my faithfulness outlasts it. I was there before any of that was there. You believe that? <laughs> and I'll be there long after it's gone. I'm not the God who ebbs and flows with the changing currents of your little world. I'm not the God who wakes up and says, oh my, what's going to happen tomorrow? I put it all there. It'll all pass away long before I do, before my salvation fails. This is what the Lord is saying to encourage his people. He was there long before any of it, including the human beings who inhabit this world, who are now forming a real threat against the nation that belongs to the Lord. Long before they were a people, long before they were a power, long before there was such a thing as Assyria, long before there was such a thing as Babylon, and long after they are gone, and, of course, we stand in hindsight, can look back, right? It's a blip on the radar. Blip. There it is. And, you know, when you live in the blip, right, that's not a Marvel reference, but when you live in the, bl in the blip, when you live in the moment, everything around you seems so huge. But for God, it's like a drop in the bucket. It's like the dust that you blow off the scale, or maybe you don't, even blow, you don't even notice it's there. You just put your things in there, you weigh it, you go on. What's a little dust? <laughs> means nothing. The Lord says, look up, look down. My salvation is bigger than all of that. You look at the mightiest 
powers in the world around you, the greatest nations, the most influential cultural movements, look at all of this, and it'll all pass away. But my word and my purposes will never pass away. Those men who raise themselves up against you, the Lord says to them, listen, fear them not nor be dismayed at their revilings. Why? Because his purposes will long outlast them. Listen, this is the way the Lord argues with them. Now, this is literally true. Listen to this. He says, they will be in their graves with worms eating holes in their body, their flesh, just like moths might eat holes in your garments in your closet. They'll be, their bodies will be in the ground being eaten by worms, and my purposes will still be going. I mean, the, the mightiest king who's arrayed against you, and he can say a word and call the greatest army on the planet to come against your city, O Zion, he's going to be in the ground stinking and rotting and being eaten by worms. Literally, that's what he's saying to them. My purposes far outlast them. They're far greater. And seriously, friends, Really, we have to take the long view. Not a year long. Not looking a year down the road, or ten years down the road, or a hundred years, or a thousand years down the road. But I'm talking about ten thousand years and more. In that kind of view, the Lord is still there, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what it is that causes us to fear and quake right now is just a breath that passes, vanishes in the, in the morning mist and, uh, and just so much dust on the scales. Newton, again, back to this hymn, says, And when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. And someone later added these words, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's exactly the kind of argument that the Lord is making with his people here. This is what you need to hear today. This is what I need to hear. And we're tempted to be afraid to doubt God's goodness in those dark and difficult times. Do you know that these people respond to the Lord in verses 9 to 11? So how is it that God's true people respond when he makes such an appeal to them? Well, they respond with faith, but also with a prayer that all of those purposes be fulfilled for them right now. Come, show us, help us. There's an earnestness about this that I think, I mean, you, you just, you, you, you get it in the repeated word, right? And even the way, the, the terminology that they use for the Lord, they say, oh God, awake, awake, wake up. Not that, not that they thought that, you know, God is like Baal who goes to sleep or goes on a long journey. The idea is that there is an, 
There's an emotional intensity here that's seeking for the Lord to arouse himself and act on their behalf. That's the way God's people pray when they see the impossibilities of things, humanly speaking, around them. Lord, show your mighty arm, just like you did. Now look what they say. Just like in the days of old, the generations of long ago, right? It's almost like they're, they're hearing his words and they're incorporating this into their prayers. Lord, you've done it in our past. We've looked back. And you will do that same work in the present. Please, oh Lord, do it. Please show yourself. Please don't hide your mighty arm. Put it on display. And then they do... Again, what the Lord has commanded them to look back, was it, and they, they look back to this. You tell me what they're referring to here. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? What are we talking about? The, starts with a, a big letter E. The Exodus, yeah. They're remembering the Exodus. Rahab, here, kind of confusing because we know another Rahab in the Bible. It's a term for Egypt, used back in chapter 30 of this text as well as other places. The Lord did what? He destroyed the dragon of Egypt, dried up the sea, caused them to walk through on dry ground. They passed over. And really, this is the equivalent of our looking back on our salvation from when we were redeemed out of slavery and brought into Christ. When God, in Christ, defeated Satan, that old serpent, the dragon, and delivered us from sin and death and judgment. Do you you remember that miracle? As these people are praying, Lord, you did this. You delivered us. But now they're praying, oh Lord, please continue that work. Now awake and show us your hand. I just wonder, have you ever earnestly prayed like that in the midst of your um, afflictions, in the midst of the darkness, really just gotten on your knees before the Lord and laid yourself out and said, Lord, please work, show your hand. I mean, in earnest. This is the kind of prayers that are held up as examples in the scripture, prayers, not just where people are, you know, praying because they know they ought to pray, but praying in in earnest. Or maybe instead you've been tempted to give in to the fear that nothing will ever change. God has forgotten you, that the enemy is too strong. These people prayed. And you can see their, their faith exhibited in verse 11, in the confident expectation that they proclaim. Verse 11 is not a a prayer request. It's a confident expression of their faith. They affirm that God will, in fact, return them to their land in the fulfillment of his promises. The ransomed of the Lord shall return, they say in their prayer, and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. By the way, let me just say, they're, 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 they're telling something to God. What are they telling God? They're telling God what he's already told them. Here's what I will do. They're saying, this will be done. There's nothing wrong with telling God what he's already told you. Yeah, Just as a matter of prayer, if you want to enrich your prayers, 
beyond just God, please help me and give me and, and be with me, you know, really recite back to the Lord with faith and confidence the promises that he's made. This is the way God's people pray. He will come with joy to Zion and bring sorrow and sighing to flee away. And now the Lord responds then in this last section to this prayer with what? Well, with continued encouragement on the one hand and with even a little reproof, gentle reproof on the other hand because in spite of their faith-filled prayer, God knows that their hearts are still really fearful. God knows that they can be people who truly trust him and have confidence in his promises, and yet in the moment, their hearts are quaking. And so he continues to purify even those who are godly. The Lord does this. And here's, here's his divine encouragement, verses 12 to 16, to a still fearful but believing people. And he, he encourages them in two ways. First, by reminding them of who he is. Reminding them of who he is. Verse 12, he repeats it twice. I, I am he who comforts you. I am he. You know, it makes all the difference who your defender is. If you have somebody who says, hey, I'll take care of you. I'll make sure everything's going to be all right with you. And they might have the best of intentions, but they don't have the ability to meet their intentions. Right? It makes all the difference who it is who will be your comforter and defender. And this is what the Lord is emphasizing. I'm the one who will be your comforter. Remember who I am. That will be your comfort. Who is the believer's comfort? Verse 13, he admonishes them, for having forgotten who he is. He is the Lord, verse 13, Yahweh, your maker. And he says, I am the one who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Remember that? That we just read? This is me. I'm the one who did it. I was there before the beginning. I created all of that. And then if you get under verse 15, he says, I am your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And then again he describes himself in the middle of verse 16. I am the one who establishes the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth. I did that. In other words, the Lord is stepping back and saying, Remember, I am the creator of all. Remember, friend, your God is the creator. He's the sovereign over all the world. He spoke and it came to be. Whatever is out there in the world that is causing you to fear, your God is the creator and master of it all. He's the one who can stand in the boat and say to the waves that he himself brought into being, that's enough. You've done your job. And the waves bow down and say, yes, master. And that, that's the way, the way the Lord is. And you, uh, listen, friend, you're just going to have to believe that. You're just going to have to believe that God is the creator of this world. Right? You're going to come to God. You have to believe that he is the one who made it all. You don't start with faith like that. You'll never have the comfort that your creator is intending you to have. 
And when you forget this, when the people of Judah forgot, he said to them in verse 13, you fear continually all the day. They were fearful that their enemy was so strong that perhaps God's purposes would be thwarted, that God had forgotten about his creation. Remember that, friends. Everything in the world is God's. He made it all. As Luther, I believe, said, even the devil is, the God, is God's devil. All of this world, you look around. It is all his. Remember who your comforter is. And then secondly, he wants them to remember not only who he is, but who they are. And I say that because of the second line of verse 12. So look at it again. It's just a kind of an, of an unusual way to say it, and you kind of have to, to think about it. But he wants them to remember not only who he is, but who they are. The second line of verse 12, Who are you that you are afraid of? of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass. You see what, you see what he's getting at? I mean, maybe you're not sure. <laughs> the, he's, he's talking about his identity as being significant in their times of fearfulness, but he's also talking about their identity. Who are you that you're afraid of these men who die like grass? As if you're not one of those men who die like the grass when the sun rises up. Who are these people? Who, who are they supposed to remember that they are? And he answers that here in this text. The very end of verse 16, the very last verse of our text. The Lord says to Zion, you are, right? There's those words of identity. Who are you? Who are you? You're God's people. You are my people. What an amazing thing. These are people of his own possession. Now, do you think, listen to me, friends, do you think that the sovereign Lord will allow his own possession to be taken from him? the one who made everything and everyone in this world, do you think his own will be ever snatched out of his hand? <laughs> Remember who you are. You belong to God. You are his people. What parent wouldn't do everything in their power and beyond if their child's life was threatened? Well, let it never be said of God that he's a worse parent than that. These are his people. Who are you to be afraid of these worldlings that are like so much grass that's just going to thrive for a, a few days and then be burned off when the summer heat really comes on? I mean, who are you to be afraid of that? You are everlasting children of the Sovereign Lord of the universe. And so he ends in verse 16 with these assurances to them. I have put my words, verse 16, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. He had, he had put his words in their mouth. Remember the prayer that they just prayed? They literally prayed his words back to him. He did that. He put his words in them. 
And now he's got them hidden in the hollow of his hand. They are safe in the hand of the Almighty. And like Jesus said, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I mean, it's like this, right? The, the sovereign hands of the universe joined in eternal purpose to care for and protect and to bring to fruition his people and all of his promises that he's made to them. Are you fearful this morning? Fearful that God's forgotten you? Fearful that the enemy is just too strong, that temptation's going to tear you down, cut you apart? You'll never end up gaining the victory. You'll never make it to the eternal city. You fear, friend, you belong to him. Are you anxious or worried? Remember who you are. Jesus said, do not be anxious for anything, what you'll eat or drink or put on. The life is, not, is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. God clothes them. I mean, God feeds them. God clothes the, the grass that is here and then is gone. God feeds the birds. Are you not of much greater value to him than they? Remember who you are. You are the Lord's. And cast yourself upon the Lord. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by what? By prayer. Isn't that what these people did? And everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, right? There's no, there's no human explanation for it. You, you're seeing something that people around you can't see because you're hearing the, vo- the words of God. The peace that passes human understanding will be with your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Cast your care upon the Lord, friend. Throw yourself on the living room floor and pray if you have to. Knock importunately upon the door of heaven until God hears. Until you know that he is good. Until you can wait with confidence in his purposes. Look, friends, look back. Remember all that he's done for you. Go back and pick up your journal. Go back and remember his grace first beginning to work in you and trust that the Lord will do it forever. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century London preacher, uh, himself faced periods of, of darkness in his life, periods of, of um, really a kind of depression, and had to learn to lean hard on the Lord during those very, very difficult times. And he said this, quote, If God has not hidden his face from you, in all probability he will. And then, when you are in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, you will be like the fainting heart or deer that panteth after the water brooks, and you will cry out after God. That's what we learn to do in those times. 
to say, Awake, awake, O Lord. Show your mighty arm. You've done so much good in the past, and you will bring us into Zion with singing and joy in the future. So help, Lord, help. Can you pray to the Lord like that? Depend on him, trust him, I hope you can. May this be his word to strengthen that resolve today. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this word. And uh, we rejoice in it. We pray its blessing in our lives as we continue to make our way through this barren world. Pray that you'd uphold those who are yours and that you'd teach us, Lord. We have learned to trust you, but oh, for grace to trust you more. Teach us now in Jesus' name.